So there were lots of questions. We'll see how many we get through. They were all really, really interesting questions. So I'll start with one about attitude. Is the attitude about the content of what's being seen or about the mind's response to seeing? I would say that the attitude, if I'm, if I'm understanding the, the, the question correctly, it m- uh, I'm interpreting it something along the lines of, um, so for instance, if we're noticing something um, like um, like a like a a, th- a thought, for instance, if if a thought is arising, um, is the attitude about the content of the thought, or is it about noticing that seeing is happening? Is the attitude about noticing seeing is happening? And so that is how I'm understanding the question and how I'll respond. And so if if that's not quite how you meant the question, then leave another question. Um, So the attitude, my understanding of attitude is that it is our relationship to what's happening. And that may be that, that, that there may be many layers of relationship to what's happening. There can be um, relationship to the content of what's happening. There can be relationship to the fact of noticing something. There can be relationship to how we're practicing with what we're noticing. So any of those can be attitudes. And so as you check in, notice your relationship. It might be at any of those levels. So for instance, around um, thinking, you know, there could be thoughts that are arising in their their memories of, of something that happened. And the checking in about the attitude of the relationship to that experience at some level might be our relationship to the content. Like we, we, we remembered that we had that thing to do and we get frustrated that we forgot to do it. And we may be caught by the thought and um, caught by the frustration and not be aware of that and checking in, we might recognize, oh, there's frustration. There's that thought and there's frustration with that. And that would be a level of seeing an attitude in relationship to that experience. Another layer or level of attitude might be that we've seen a thought, we've noticed thinking is happening, and the uh, the attitude is more about the fact of thinking than the content of thinking. That attitude might be related to, I shouldn't be thinking, I'm meditating. So it could have to do with an agenda in meditation, for instance. And uh, the mind may be kind of resistant to thought itself, just thought, seeing a thought, and and almost uh, turning towards attending to something in order to make it go away. That might be an attitude in the mind, a kind of an agenda in the mind. So in terms of the attitude, what we're exploring with attitude is looking for relationships to experience. 
It's, it's kind of like exploring the possibility that there are, I should probably put it that way, instead of an active. It's not so much that we're actively looking for, but that there's the possibility of uncovering relationships to experience that are not, um, are not in our conscious awareness. And the checking of the attitude helps to bring what is not, uh, aspects of relationship that we're not aware of up into consciousness. And in that bringing them into consciousness, they can be seen, they can be um, met, they can be, they can be known, they can, we can understand how they are influencing our minds. So for instance, the simpler, the simplest form of this might be, you know, of, se- of not seeing, for instance, an attitude. Um, so if, if there's some thought in the mind about, oh, I forgot to do that thing, and a kind of frustration in the mind about the content of that. So that's, that's kind of the, that's a, an attitude relating to the, to the content of the thought. If we're not aware of that attitude of the frustration, it's like when we're not aware of, of an attitude especially attitudes related to greed, aversion, delusion. We're not aware of those attitudes. It's like they become, they can become a a filter through which we relate to other experience. So if we we, um, have that thought, we don't particularly, you know, notice the frustration that's related to that thought, but we, we just kind of like, oh, I've got to fix that, I've got to do that. But, but it's, not, it's not conscious that there's frustration. We haven't brought that into conscious awareness. Then the next thing we bring our attention to, we may be unwittingly bringing that frustration to it. And so that, that attitude then begins to kind of spread. So even the, even the attitudes in relationship to the content can be really important to explore and to see. But there are so many different levels. And I don't think it's necessary to know what level of attitude you're looking at, but just being curious about, is there some relationship to experience that's not of, that's kind of in, in the background, that's, that hasn't been fully or consciously seen. That's, that's kind of the intention of opening to the attitude, to expose something that might not be so, that might not be conscious yet. And I'll say that um, this includes attitudes that are related to wise attitude. That when we, when we see um, or can begin to recognize what it is to have a relationship to experience that is balance of mind, ease, calm, non-reactivity, kindness, compassion, that sometimes we we aren't actually sometimes when we as we're as we're finding our way to to wise attitude we don't consciously recognize those wholesome qualities 
And so as we consciously recognize those wholesome qualities, the, the power, some of the power of, of wise mindfulness begins to take effect. And one of the great aspects of wise mindfulness is that when mindfulness, wise mindfulness meets states of mind related to greed, aversion, delusion. It tends to create the conditions for those to weaken, diminish. The transformation around those is that they they get weaker in our minds. And so bringing them into consciousness has the effect of of, um, allowing them to transform and release. With beginning to become aware of the qualities connected with wise attitude. The beautiful, wholesome qualities of mind, the many wholesome qualities of mind that can be different flavors of wise attitude. Wise mindfulness, when, when mindfulness meets wholesome qualities of mind, it creates the conditions for them to begin to appear more frequently. So the transformation there is that they, they, it, strengthens, it strengthens them. And so however we are exploring, whenever we explore and open to attitude, the power of wise mindfulness has this beautiful property of transforming and weakening the unwholesome and strengthening, encouraging the wholesome. So equally valuable to notice the attitudes when there is non-reactivity. And sometimes that, that's, it's not so, sometimes we're not so inclined or not so, it's not so up for us to check when it feels like things are going kind of smoothly or, you know, it's just kind of rolling along to check what's my attitude then? You know, sometimes checking the attitude when it feels like it's going well reveals some kind of subtle greed or, you know, ooh, maybe I can make this keep going. This feels pretty good or some subtle fear about maybe it's not going to keep going. So, so sometimes checking the attitude when it feels like it's going well can help some very subtle kind of clinging come into consciousness. But sometimes it can help us to see what is this calm mind? Wow, this, or, or happiness, delight, joy in witnessing. The, the, sometimes the attitude in the mind around practice is delight in the seeing. And we may not be consciously aware of that, but as we can become consciously aware of it, it encourages, inclines the mind more in that direction. So this question seems to have come from the, the talk yesterday where I was describing uh, how sometimes the mind slips out. Uh, there are gaps in the mindfulness and sometimes the, the, the slipping out the gap in the mindfulness might be when the uh, attention, if we're in kind of a 
a, a state of broad awareness or we're attending to something and then the, the attention shifts to something else that we haven't noticed. And I used the example of a woodpecker. Maybe the attention shifts to the woodpecker and we haven't noticed. And we start thinking about the woodpecker and where is it and can I see it and what does it look like? And I haven't seen woodpeckers before. And we just kind of get lost there. So that's a very common way for the mindfulness to wander. Um, that the um, the attention shifts or there's a perception that the uh, mind has gotten interested in that we haven't been consciously aware of. And so the question is, how would I know that the woodpecker took me out? Seems as if when I wake up there could be any number of things that happened between awareness and woodpecker. And maybe the woodpecker brought me back. And wouldn't, wouldn't it actually be impossible to be mindful of what is in the gap? Can I really be mindful of that too? So, um, it, is, it is definitely possible that the woodpecker can bring you back. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the, um, there are definitely times when something happens and we, we, we come back into mindfulness and it, it might be it might be a pain in the body, it might be a it might be a strong sound and, and suddenly we notice, you know, you know, the motorcycle goes by and it's so loud it kind of brings us back into mindfulness. So definitely that that can happen. Um, and the question about, you know, um, so how would I know that the woodpecker took me out? If there's a long gap if there's a, a, a long gap between um, the time that the mindfulness gets lost and the mindfulness comes back, you may, you may have no idea what took you out. There's probably no way to, to trace back and, and figure that out, what it, what it was that took you out. But sometimes those little gaps are short. And... Um, you know, it might be, for instance, one example uh, of how it might, you might recognize that the woodpecker took you out is um, you wake up thinking about woodpeckers and you know it's been, you know, two or three seconds. You know, so you have a sense of how long you've been lost and, and you wake up thinking about woodpeckers. And then there may be a vague recollection of having heard a woodpecker because we, we do, um, you know, when we're not mindful, some part of our mind is functioning. You know, the, 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 the processes of mind and body carry on whether we're mindful or not. And so we're hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, things happening in the mind, whether we're mindful or not. We're perceiving, we're feeling, we're... Um, experiencing whether we're mindful or not. There is consciousness whether we're mindful or not. There's knowing, there's feeling, there's, there's a perception whether we're mindful or not. And this is how we manage to, to drive down the road with being completely lost in thought because those functions of mind are doing their job. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the moment when we wake up, in the moment when mindfulness returns, there's often in that moment 
a kind of a an understanding because because it hasn't been long since the mind was doing something else. There's, there's, a, there's an understanding as mindfulness returns, a kind of a knowing, there can be a knowing of what was just happening. I mean, we're waking up into something, so we know what we're waking up into. Maybe thoughts about woodpeckers. And then there's the, the kind of, in the waking up, there's the, the, the kind of recollection of, of what was happening. Maybe the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the drifting thoughts and maybe even the memory of, oh yeah, I did hear that woodpecker. But I didn't quite really know I heard that woodpecker. So sometimes we can kind of see in retrospect what it might be that took us out. But, but that's actually not where this is most interesting. I mean, mostly what uh, is is interesting is to begin to be curious about that shift of attention, the experience of attention shifting. And I encourage that particularly in the walking in terms of seeing, looking, hearing, listening. As we get familiar with that quality of the mind as it shifts to some new experience, we, we, um, we gain a familiarity with that actual movement of mind, the attention going to something. As we gain a familiarity with that, then we begin to see how the, uh, the shift of attention, it, it's like what, 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 what can begin to happen is that we see a shift of attention and feel a kind of a weakening of mindfulness there. We can kind of feel the mindfulness and kind of like a picking up of interest in that. And, uh, and so we can begin to see that if we um, kind of let the mindfulness or, or, or if we allow the mind to keep doing what it was doing, which is kind of getting lost into that, that we would lose awareness. And so it's more that we understand through this seeing of the shift of attention, we see that, we see the shift of attention. We, we start to, to see how in that shift, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a very slippery slope. If we're not clearly aware of that shift, it's a very slippery slope to getting lost into thinking about it. The mind picks up on something, it perceives it, it wants to think about it, and then it starts just proliferating. And so that, that's a very common movement of mind. Um, and, and you can begin to see how it works that that happens. But if there's a long gap, a long, like, non-mindful time, you may have no clue what it was. I mean, it could have been, it could have been a motorcycle that took you out and then the mind thought about motorcycles for a little while or thought about going to the beach for a little while and then, and then, and then wandered into swimming in the ocean and then, and then wandered into being cold when you got out of the ocean and, and then you wake up and you're thinking about being cold and it's like, okay, you know, no idea what the chain of things were. Occasionally in that waking up, we, we kind of have a memory of, you know, what was the chain of thoughts 
that led to that, that, that had happened. And again, we can remember that because our minds are, that the, the processes of mind are doing their job. And yet, I would not say it's necessarily useful when you wake up into thinking about, uh, oh, cold is what I'm thinking about, and, and, and yeah, I'm not even cold right now. Why am I thinking about being cold? Well, oh, oh, I remember I was thinking about being in the ocean. Oh, and what was happening before that? Oh, yeah, let's see. Oh, I was remembering driving to the, uh, and, and we try to think back. That is not so helpful. Because that process of thinking back is just a, a kind of, you're missing basically what's happening now in the process of trying to remember. So sometimes in the mindfulness returning, there can be a kind of spontaneous recollection of that stream of thoughts that happened, sometimes. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to remember that. And then the question of, is it, is it possible to be mindful of what is in the gap? Well, I think to some extent I've just mentioned that, that as the mindfulness returns, you know, I sometimes say it's, po- it's, it's possible to be mindful of anything, except perhaps non-mindfulness. You know, but, but whatever is happening in that non-mindfulness, it's possible theoretically possible to be mindful of that, you know, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, things going on in the mind. It's possible to be mindful of those things. But when mindfulness is lost, while mindfulness is lost, it's not possible to be mindful of that in that moment while mindfulness is lost. But in the return of mindfulness, there is often a little bit of a lingering sense or memory of what was happening before that. And so there can be a knowing or a remembering in that moment. But then what's arising in that moment is remembering. Remembering that I was thinking that. That's what's happening now. And that can be known. And that, that something I said in that question made me think of this one, so I'll, I'll come to this one next. And the context of this question is, Andrea mentioned that intellectual thinking does not free us. It's the understanding that comes from experiential knowing that frees us. And so there's a, a couple of questions related to that. What is contemplation if it is a function of thinking? How can we use contemplation as a skillful means to support our practice? And what are some useful and unuseful ways to process experience without getting caught in the content? So one of the things I just described about thinking back, what happened and what happened before that and what happened before that and what happened before that, that's, that's not so useful most of the time. But there are times when contemplation can be useful. 
in our practice. One of the ways that um, sometimes contemplation or thoughts arise naturally. There's a whole whole use of thoughts. In fact, you know, some of the what we use here in this practice is using using thoughts. So asking the questions. That's that's a kind of contemplation. You know, asking the question, what is my attitude? What's the attitude? That's a form of contemplation because it's bringing uh, a thought or a question into the mind and almost encouraging or inclining the mind in the direction of exploring that question. But it is not about thinking about that question. It's more that 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 question just opens an avenue of experience that may not have been available before. And that's, that's kind of the, the um, one of the purposes of the questions is to kind of open up the mind to things that it might not be noticing. And so that is a form of contemplation that it is, again, it's, it's not a thinking, it's not that we're encouraging our minds to think about, well, what's my attitude? Well, let me see, you know. I know that when I was a kid, I had that happening, and, uh, and this kind of reminds me of something that happened when I was a kid. So, well, when I was a kid, I know that I, I got really frustrated at times when people did things like that, and sometimes, you know, that kind of thinking about is not, not what we're exploring here but bringing the question of what is the, the relationship and then just dropping back into, and what's happening now? It's like sometimes that question just allows the awareness to kind of pick up on something a little more broad than it was noticing before. Another kind of use of thought or contemplation in practice is when we um, we can sometimes use. I talked in the in the talk a little bit about um, wisdom. You know, reminding ourselves of what we know. Know, reminding ourselves sometimes it can be really helpful if if we're if things are sticky um, and we see that we're kind of stuck to something then we can remind ourselves just with a little you know a conscious reminder mm, this is impermanent or oh, this is nature so this is a way of using thought that it supports bringing dharma understanding or dharma wisdom into the mind. Sometimes that dharma wisdom is is borrowed from our teachers or from hearing teachings. And certainly at the beginning of my practice I had read some information about, you know, try to try to just notice your emotions instead of acting on them. And so that was, that was kind of an exploration. It's like, 
you know, what does it mean to just be with frustration rather than acting on it? And that maybe it's possible to do that. But I didn't really know what that meant. I couldn't draw on that understanding of my own understanding. I was kind of drawing on books and drawing on what what I had read. And so that was kind of a borrowing of wisdom. And so sometimes we can, we can um, even not necessarily understanding something for ourselves, just, just reminding ourselves, yeah, everything's impermanent. Uh, uh, this will change, you know, something like that. And then over time we start having our own understandings, our own insights, our own understanding, seeing directly, oh yeah, things do change. Or a thought is just a thought. And sometimes having that uh, understanding ourselves, the, then we can remind ourselves of what we have understood. So instead of reminding ourselves what we've read, we are reminding ourselves of our own understanding. It may not be directly experientially accessible in that moment. And so it's like we're using our memory, using our thinking mind to help us remember, yes, I, I, I knew, I've experienced this. And actually I find for myself the, the use of wisdom reflections. Um, helpful, I think, to have them be pretty succinct just like, well, this is impermanent or causes and conditions. This is not me. This is nature. It's just a thought. Something along those lines. So something pretty succinct to bring in. And again, not thinking about it, not a big story about it, but just a little wisdom that resonates. And in terms of the wisdom that resonates most potently for us. I find it when we are, um, we have um, wisdom or understanding from our own experience, there's almost a language of that wisdom or a, a language of understanding that's our own language. So the one for me, this is just a thought. That was how that understanding it's expressed itself when I saw it in the moment, seeing a thought of self-hatred and, and recognizing the whole pattern of self-hatred arising. It's just a thought. So that, that understanding, this is just a thought, was connected to that whole experience of that moment of understanding. And so that was very evocative for my practice. That use of that thought was very evocative. And so it can be, as you have your own understandings, is there something you see clearly? Oh, this is just. Sometimes, sometimes our insights express themselves through language. The insight itself is not the language, but it's almost like the insight happens and then our mind articulates it. 
It's not that I'm doing that articulation, but you know, we notice it like that. This is just a thought. That just arose. It wasn't that I consciously thought that thought. It just arose. And yet it, it, was, it was so connected to the understanding that that language was very powerful for me. And so sometimes as we have an understanding or have an insight, language arises in our minds that expresses that insight. And you can um, sometimes make use of that, make use of that understanding. I would say there can be, this is also an area where we tend to get lost. <laughs> uh, another leading cause of papancha is insight. <laughs> you have an insight, oh, this is just a thought, and then we start thinking about that. You know, so if we're not really clearly recognizing the, the, the way our mind recognizes that insight as language, we can start thinking about it. We can go off in a chain of thoughts about it and just kind of, you know, get lost in a, in a, in a world of, uh, isn't it going to be so great when I'm fully enlightened? <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so um, it's not so helpful to let the mind keep thinking about an insight. Somebody actually asked Joseph that question one time I was in the hall and, and they said, you know, so sometimes I do find it helpful to reflect on an insight that I've had. And how long can I let that go on for? And Joseph said, four or five seconds. <laughs> you know, so if you let it go on much longer than that, probably it's got to get into the proliferation and we'll lose awareness. So the, the, um, the understanding that happens with that, it may, it may not, I mean, we, 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 we think we need to hold on to it somehow. We think we need to remember it or, or like, file it away and write it down and, and if I don't write it down or, or consciously like keep reinforcing it that I'll forget it somehow. And the way these insights work, it's got a very different character, a different flavor than that. And um, it's more along the lines of there's an understanding, it's a, there's, there is an understanding that's happened. There's something different as the mind has understood that. Like just the recognition. The arising of self-hatred is just a thought. That didn't mean that I didn't get caught in self-hatred after that point. It didn't mean that thoughts of self-hatred didn't arise after that. But um, there was a deeper understanding of the conditioned nature of that. And as the mind kind of moved into that terrain around the understanding that happened, so the mind kind of recognized the, the conditions of something coming together. The, it's, it's almost like the insights, when the, mind, when the mindfulness is more um, continuous, those insights are kind of available to, to inform the practice. 
And we don't have to try to remember them. We don't have to try to think about, oh, right, let's see, I'm in the terrain of self-hatred right now. What was that insight? Just be with what's here and trust. So it comes back to trust again. Trust that that awareness is creating the conditions both for new wisdom to arise and it almost like, it almost like, it's like creates the conditions for the wisdom that we've understood to, to be pulled to the surface again somehow. It's, it's, it, it doesn't exactly work that way, but maybe kind of feels that way. You mentioned getting out of the driver's seat yesterday. Can you elaborate on that? Most of us have been necessarily in the driver's seat all of our lives to direct our energy and get things done, like going to this retreat. What is the context and how can it be done? So the the image of getting out of a driver's seat, I would say, is an analogy that's evocative of a shift of perspective that's possible in our practice. And that shift of perspective, I would say, is shifting from a sense of I am the one who is doing I am the one who is acting. I'm the one who's choosing. It's a very common and pervasive sense of self that we we carry. It's it's it, it seems pretty human that a um, a sense of I am the one who chooses. I am the one who acts. I am the one who decides. And there is agency in our human system. Choice happens. Choices are made. Choices are conditioned based on conditions from the past, conditions from what's happening now. So it's a very dynamic process of the, the arising of choice. It's a very dynamic process. If we are not mindful, what I would say, if we're not consciously aware in the present moment of the possibility of choice, if there's, if there's not awareness of that choice, um, essentially our habits, our conditioning is the one in charge of making those choices, is the, is the process in charge of making those choices. And habitually we attribute that process to be I or me partly because this being has gone through those conditions and there's a kind of sense of, well, yes, this is the decision. This is the decisions. I, these are the decisions I make. This is the kind of decision I make. And so a decision is made, a decision is made based on conditions. And there's a feeling. I did that. I chose that. There's a sense of, 
I'm the one that did that. So there's a sense of being in the driver's seat. As we become mindful, as we become uh, more aware of these choices or these possibilities of choices, we start to see in the moment that um, when mindfulness is present, you know, initially I would say what it feels like when, when mindfulness is present is that we see kind of habits kind of moving us in one direction. And because we're mindful and we can recognize based on perhaps seeing where that habit leads, you know, when, when we're more aware, then mindfulness is now a condition that informs that choice. And perhaps we can then choose, you know, there's a sense of choosing, hmm, maybe I shouldn't open my mouth right now. Maybe I shouldn't say that thing right now. And there's the choice not to speak. And it may also feel like I did that. I made that choice. Again, it's a kind of a, an attribution of the experience of choosing. A very habitual attribution of self to being the one who chooses. And as, as our mindfulness gets more kind of continuous and present, we start to see that what's going on is that there are conditions arising from our history. There are conditions arising in the present. There's mindfulness or perhaps reactivity arising in the present that also informs or conditions a choice that's made. And a choice is made based on all of that coming together. And then we might even begin to sense or have a sense of the, the attribution of, I did that. Like, that was me. Kind of a sense of the arising of self and seeing that, that arising of self happening after the fact. <laughs> And, and beginning to see, actually, wow, that choice was conditioned. And so the, the um, image of getting out of the driver's seat is, is kind of pointing to the possibility of noticing how choices are made, what that choosing happens, but that not necessarily, it's not necessary for me to do that choosing. It's like there is, there is, it's like it's a self-driving car. We've got that analogy now. It's a self-driving car. It's got processes at work that choose, decide, red light, stop. And we're in the passenger seat and we can see that these processes are choosing and deciding, but we're not the ones doing it. And so it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an image I feel that's evocative of kind of settling back, letting go of the this, this sense of having to be in charge and see what happens. If you have the sense of of settling back and receiving, you'll notice that 
there's the mind, the mind will choose something to pay attention to, even without me saying, oh, I want to pay attention to that right now. And we begin to see how this works. We're walking, we see, there's, there's just seeing, there's seeing happening, and then there's a splotch of color, and the attention orients. And we notice looking, and who did that? We see that it's happened, that a choice was made to look, but recognize that it was a conditioned process, that that choice happened, and that I didn't have to decide to do that. That's the feeling of being out of the driver's seat, starting to see the unfolding processes of our body and mind happening. Without, I mean, thank goodness we don't have to be in charge. Thank goodness I don't have to figure out how to perceive experience. The the processes of, of our human system are very, very powerful and very uh, capable. And we think, the, the misattribution is that we think something will happen, a choice is made, and we think we made that choice. We think, I did that. The sense of self is actually more of, a, of an afterthought. And yet what the, what's paradoxical about the sense of self, it, it, it also is a condition. And so we have a sense of self, a feeling of this is me, this is who I am, and that itself becomes a condition that influences choices. I'm the kind of person who can do these things and can't do those things. So we have a sense of self based on history, based on conditioning. And then that sense of self itself becomes a condition. Even though that sense of self is purely a construct, that sense of self becomes a condition that then influences, becomes a kind of almost self-fulfilling prophecy. I become that person who does these things and doesn't do those things because I haven't noticed that the sense of self is is purely a construct. It's just a, and and yet it is a condition. And so the sense of self is not only something that is after the fact, but it's kind of tumbling on our sense of self. Whatever sense of self is arising, if it's not clearly seen, it is also a condition that influences how we how we meet experience, what we receive in experience. Hmm. So I think I'm not going to get to all of these, so um, I'll save some of them.
been practicing for many years and I don't think in all that time it has occurred to me to be motivated by awakening. I'm more interested in my day-to-day being more kind, generous, less dukkha, more moments of awakening to life, certainly less me, mine, etc. I'd appreciate comments on awakening, motivation, etc. So, um, I would say, I mean, the simplest definition I know of that the Buddha pointed to, simplest definition for freedom, is the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion. And so awakening isn't a thing. In some ways it's, I understand awakening is more of a non-arising of suffering. And as we practice, we may get little glimpses of weakenings of greed, aversion, delusion, sometimes even feelings of real freedom, a sense of um, self-hatred vanishes in a split second. Or even some of the kinds of things I was talking about yesterday, you know, a shift of perspective that allows a <coughs> weakening, a weakening of suffering, a weakening of, of struggle. You know, so these, these experiences of the weakening of dukkha are pointers in the direction of this possibility of freedom. And I think, you know, we don't have to be, we don't have to think about ultimate freedom in order to be motivated by the, uh, as as this uh, this person says, you know, I'm I'm interested in day-to-day being more kind, generous, less dukkha, more moments of awakening to life, less me, less mine. So the, from the question I understand, there there is some some recognition of the value of practice and and how it has created conditions for less suffering, more more freedom, less dukkha is the direction of this practice. So it's like you know, we, we get on that in that uh, you know the perspective of mindfulness that orients us to being interested in being aware to support less suffering in our lives. The the motivation of that 
towards, yeah, this is useful. I'm, I'm on board for less suffering in my life. That to me is being motivated by awakening. It's, it's maybe just the littlest glimpses of a different possibility, a small glimpse of that shift or a, a, a glimpse of a moment of letting go of anger and seeing, wow, that was all a construct of mind. And seeing, it's like that moment gives, gives the possibility, it, it points us to the possibility. And for myself, that kind of, that kind of sense was almost like, um, you know, Gil gave this an exa- analogy one day that I really resonated with. Um, it, was, it was a long time ago. I haven't heard him use it since then, but I did ask him if I could use this an- analogy because I resonated with it. And he said, it's kind of like you got a linoleum floor. And the, you know how linoleum floors get really dirty and they're so hard to clean. You know, they just get this, this like stain on them. But, but you know, you can get down on that linoleum floor and work really hard. One day I happened to spill club soda on my linoleum floor. And it was a, it was a pretty big mess. And I, 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 it took me a while to get the stuff that I needed to, cl- to clean it up for some reason. I don't know. I don't remember why, but it took a while. And, and, so, and then I started sopping up the, the, you know, that mess. And underneath that club soda, the linoleum was like, wow, I didn't know the linoleum could get that clean. And, and, you know, it was, there was, there was some bit of work there because it's like there was a lot of club soda on the floor and, and it, you know, it, it had to sit there for a long time. And, you know, another analogy might be, you know, some, somebody gets down there and really scrubs in one spot. You know, I, I figure if the club soda can do it, if I got down there and really scrubbed in this one little square inch, I probably could clean that little bit of linoleum. It's like you clean that one spot. And theoretically, you know, it's possible for the entire floor to be clean. You know it's going to be a lot of work. But theoretically, it's possible. And so kind of like that with these glimpses or these moments of uh, freedom, that there's a taste of, wow, it's possible for the mind to not get caught by that. It's possible for self-hatred to vanish in an instant and see it is completely a construct of mind. That seeing that possibility, there's an understanding, kind of like the mind understands a vaster form of awakening that might be possible in that moment through, it's kind of like through, almost like extrapolation. It understands that possibility. And that, that can be very inspiring. The sense, the, the sense of touching that possibility for, you know, it's like theoretically. And it doesn't even feel theoretical anymore. It's like, no, I know it's possible. It's possible for the mind to let go of its ways that it creates suffering. 
And so the moments, the little shifts, being inspired by those, being inspired to continue because of more kindness, more generosity, less suffering. To me, that is being inspired by awakening. By the possibility, we're motivated. We're motivated to continue because we understand the value, the value of the practice. Sometimes we understand that value perhaps a little, um, a little more fully than others. So it's time to stop. So let's just sit for a moment. 